Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. On our journey today, uh, along with me is Adam Clayton Powell III. Adam uh, will join me in the questioning of our special guest today, who is Jeremy Renshaw, Senior Technical Executive at the Electric Power Research Institute. And the reason we've asked Jeremy to be on the show is because there is a convergence. We have terrible weather, terrible heat, which has forced an interest in keeping the electricity going and the air conditioning up at full volume. And the electric utilities are at the center of that. But they're also part of the revolution, which we're all aware of, which is the impact on society of artificial intelligence. It's just beginning. Jeremy, welcome to the broadcast and tell us, how is artificial intelligence impacting electric supply? There are so many ways that artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies can help and influence the grid as well as power, power operators to be able to be more efficient, more effective, more resilient in the face of, as you say, climate change and other natural disasters and things. So there are so many ways that we can benefit society from using AI. And some of the things that, that EPRI and our member utilities are doing in this space are looking at things like satellite imagery, where satellites 10, 20 years ago were very expensive to use, but the costs have gone down dramatically to now where we can use multispectral satellite imaging, task a satellite to go, and then we can analyze these multispectral or hyperspectral images to have AI look at dead and dying trees so we can proactively go out and, and cut the right trees to make sure that in the face of severe weather or storms that we've already proactively gone out and cut the right trees. That helps to keep the power on. Um, similarly, if we do have a severe weather event, um, we're getting to the point where we can start to task a satellite before and after uh, a weather event to go and take images of an area and again, identify areas with significant damage rather than sending out crews of teams and, and paying overtime, sending them out early morning, middle of the night. Uh, we can simply task a satellite and get that data so much faster than we ever were able to do it before. So artificial intelligence helps us with that, as well as so many other areas in terms of um, operating our plants more efficiently, more effectively in combination with our subject matter experts. So really having computers do what computers do best, which is perform calculations and have humans do what humans do best, which is think creatively, implement solutions and kind of look at the, the next generation of what we can be doing. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there, and, and, but there's just so many other things that we can do to integrate artificial intelligence into what we're doing in the power industry. There are more and more demands for electricity, more electric cars, more electric heat pumps instead of gas and oil heating homes. How does AI help uh, deal with increasing demand on, on the power grid and on power generation? So Adam, obviously AI is not going to be generating power for us as, as you well know, but what we can do is use that power more efficiently. So some of the things that we're looking at is how can we optimize um, different storage technologies, whether it's pumped hydro storage or battery storage that's coming online, or how can we use grid integrated buildings? Um, buildings use a large amount of the energy in the US and around the world, something like 49, 
on the order of almost half of the energy that we use, like 49%, it comes from buildings. And so if we can optimize how and when we use energy in these buildings, we can reduce energy by 20, 30, or sometimes even 40% in those buildings, which if they're taking up almost half of our overall energy usage, um, taking that much energy off of the grid saves those building operators a lot of money, as well as frees up the power grid operators to use that energy how and when it's needed without having to invest significant resources in developing new generation assets. So it's one of those unique situations where both sides benefit, both the utility and the end customer. Jeremy, where are we in the use of AI in the utility space? Are we at 1%? Are we at 50%? Uh, are we using it widely or is it really very, very new as it is in many things? I'd say there's a whole spectrum of usage in the energy industry today. So some utilities are just getting started. Um, other utilities, especially in Europe, are very advanced in using it in many things that they're doing with their advanced metering infrastructure, with operating of the, their plants and so forth. Um, in the US, we are maybe a little bit behind what they're doing in Europe on an average. But again, we have some utilities that are very mature and very advanced in using it in many different applications. In fact, developing some of their own applications internally and deploying them company-wide. Uh, but we have other utilities, especially the smaller utilities that don't have that kind of investment or that kind of budget. So they may be looking to be a fast follower or trying to wait until some of the technologies are more advanced. So we have some people that are just getting started and some that are relatively mature I wouldn't say we have anyone that is fully mature and using it integrated across their entire business everywhere that it could be, um, but we are growing in that maturity and that spectrum is shifting towards increased maturity. Related to that is an intriguing uh, quote from a, a vice president at Siemens Energy who said that energy companies are becoming digital companies. Uh, do you agree? And uh, so what does that mean? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that the as part of the energy transition we're seeing the u.s power grid which is the most complex machine ever built by many many people's estimations becoming exponentially more complicated we have a very complex grid system across the u.s with many nodes and points that are interacting and that has served us well for many years and now we're asking a lot more out of that system where we have prosumers, um, consumers who sometimes produce power, sometimes consume power. So now each home may have power inflow, power outflow, depending on what time of day it is. And so that very complex machine that we have is becoming so much so more complex to the point where at EPRI, we've launched a challenge called the Learning to Run a Power Network or L2RPN challenge where we're looking at using reinforcement learning agents as a decision support agent for these grid operators. And what I mean by that is we can train this reinforcement learning agent essentially in a gamified state where we have a virtual power grid and we perturb it in different ways. Maybe there's a down power line or maybe there's a, a squirrel or an animal that causes a, a short. And then the reinforcement learning agent adapts to and tries to react to those changes and it gets rewards for doing well and punishments for not doing well in terms of a gamified state. Essentially, you could think of points and positive or negative points. 
And so in this way, it runs through thousands or millions of different scenarios and continues to learn how to adapt to those to maintain power flow. And what we've seen from this is some very early stage, but promising results, where in some cases, these reinforcement learning agents can do uh, superhuman things, whereas they can do more than what current operators can or adapt faster. In other cases, they don't do as well. So we're still, again, at the early stages. This is the kind of thing where, you know, a 95% is nowhere near good enough. Uh, but as we start to use and develop these technologies, they will get better and better. And as we train them with more complex and more representative data, they will get to a point at some point where we can really start to deploy these. And the next stage that we're looking at for that particular project, the learning to run a power network, is actually deploying it on a grid in a small country where it would act as that decision support agent. So it's not operating the grid, but it would be assisting those who are. So very exciting times. Jeremy, what are the threats to the supply of electricity as a homeowner, as an ordinary consumer? Is it a cyber attack? Is it extreme weather? Or is it that we simply are using in times of enormous stress, like at present, more electricity than we can generate? As we electrify the economy with more electric vehicles and uh, electrified systems and processes, we're going to be using more electricity in the future than we are now. So we have to be ready for that demand and using it efficiently. To your point of additional stresses from climate change, we're absolutely experiencing those now. And on the threat side, we absolutely have bad actors around the world, not just in the US, that are trying to penetrate the grid and do malicious things. And as you know, as I know, uh, when you turn off power, it's a very real consequence that you will impact people's lives and especially and disproportionately those who are um, economically disadvantaged. Or maybe somebody can afford to throw out their entire fridge if, if they're well off. Somebody who's living paycheck to paycheck simply can't afford to throw away all that food and, and replace it. So there are very real negative consequences to losing power. And so we want to be aware of those and respond to those so things like cybersecurity attacks are, are an area where we feel that AI can assist what operators doing today by taking some of the automated tasks off. So looking at, you know, are we seeing suspect IP addresses or is there a certain user that is getting or trying to get access to a system where they don't have a need to? And so AI can help in some of these cases to automate many of those tasks or flag certain actions that are going on so that again, people can do what people do best and evaluate that while machines crunch away the numbers and, and go according to their training in the background to assist them. We're all familiar with the Colonial Pipeline uh, uh, cybersecurity hack, uh, which affected a lot of people in the Eastern US. But uh, you look at the country, I'm thinking of South Africa, which used to have one of the best electrical systems in the world. And now the power goes out just about every day in Johannesburg and other major cities. And people there uh, say that they can't keep food uh, in their refrigerators because it will go bad if they know the power is going to be out four or five hours a day. Um, the, that, that's uh, uh, something which you, where you say Europe is ahead of us, but uh, is this becoming uh, more of a problem as this, again, in your words, the, the most complicated machine ever built becomes ever more complicated? Is this becoming more of a problem? I would say in some cases, yes, and in others, no. Uh, because 
as you mentioned, Adam, one of the things that we're also dealing with is that very complicated power system is also aging. So we're already near the end of the useful lifetime or original design lifetime of many of those assets. So we're looking at how can we replace the right ones at the right time before they fail and cause large scale outages? Or how can we be ready for that? So this is an area where um, EPRI and many of our utility partners are, are looking into because as you say, there's very large impacts of that energy supply issue. And, and similarly, energy security issues are big too, but we can talk about those in, you know, later on. Um, one of the things that we're doing at EPRI is bringing together a large database of images that can be used and trained along with drones to be able to go out and just task a drone to go along a power line and take images. And what we're able to do with drones today is so much more than what we were able to do in the past using helicopter flybys or manual inspections with the truck. Um, but now we have this, this huge database of, of images that have to be inspected and evaluated. And so we can train machine learning algorithms based on these vast image libraries to be able to go through and identify components that are uh, beginning to degrade. So you can look at wood compression breaks in the power poles or woodpecker holes or an insulator that is chipped or, or had other types of damage like um, my favorite, um, I shouldn't say favorite, but um, one of the most interesting names of damage is alligatoring in, in an insulator. So we have all kinds of different degradation mechanisms that can happen. And so we can train these algorithms to look for those types of um, those types of degradation. We're still in, in the stages of gathering the data there. Uh, so we have about 150,000 images. So you would think that's a lot, but considering all of the different variations that we can have and the number of images that we need, uh, we estimate somewhere north of 600,000 images would be needed in total to be able to round out that library. So we're still early on in that journey, even though we've made a lot of progress. I'd like to take this opportunity uh, for you to tell us, uh, Jeremy, what is EPRI? How is it financed? Who controls it? And why did it come into being? Yeah, so it, that's a, a great, great history story. So EPRI uh, was founded in a blackout. So the great Northeastern blackout of 1965 caused a, a massive power outage. And so the utilities and the government uh, were having discussions and the government said, hey, we need some sort of body that can help the utility industry to come together for these types of issues, not just blackouts, but all types of issues in the energy sector. So what the utilities came back with said that we feel that we can do this really well and we would like to put together a nonprofit for public benefit organization. And that's how EPRI was founded. So um, EPRI, to give you a sense of who we are, we're an independent, nonprofit, global research and development company. Um, our members are utilities from around the world as well as other organizations. And one of the things that we focus on is collaboration. Uh, collaboration is key to what we do. And we need innovation to be able to continue advancing the state of art, the art in these research and development projects. And really we need um, utilities to collaborate with us to be able to then implement these technologies into the field for meeting our public benefit mission. Aren't we making the grid and especially depending on things like artificial intelligence so enormously complex that it also increases its vulnerability 
and the inability of human beings to swiftly intervene as by pulling a plug out of the switch. Um, is he getting more vulnerable as he gets more sophisticated? Artificial so that, that's a very complex and uh, multifaceted question, Llewellyn, which is why I love talking with you. You always have these great insights. So I would say that the answer is also a little bit complex and nuanced in that in some cases, the answer is yes, um, because the system is more complex, it reaches more things. So we have a larger attack surface, if you will, to defend against. Uh, but similarly, we can also use AI and some of these advanced technologies to augment our cybersecurity practices to um, better protect that, that, that attack surface. And so, one of the things that we're looking at to, to help and support is not only in the cybersecurity area, but how can we better utilize the assets that we have? Again, making sure we have the most efficient uh, flow of energy. One of the saving graces of the power grid is that there's a lot of inertia on it. So that as we turn off you know, one small turbine or generator or the sun goes behind a cloud over a small solar farm, there's still a lot of inertia on the grid that, that manages to regulate. And so power grid operators don't necessarily have to react immediately. But as we have larger numbers of lower generation sources like wind and solar, we have to be a little bit more nimble than we've been in the past and react a little bit faster. Now, again, it's kind of that give and take because on the flip side, we're also starting to see technologies advance for energy storage, especially grid scale battery storage. And that's going to be an area where when the wind blows and the sun shines, we can charge up these batteries. And as, as the wind stops blowing or the sun stops shining, then we can discharge from those batteries. So it's kind of this complex give and take of, we're continuing to advance the state of the art, but we're also continuing to push and squeeze more out of our power grid. So um, really good question. And hopefully that answered in a way that, that made sense and, and that kind of brought in some of the nuances. Training AI is, a, is a, not a simple thing, that uh, there are stories all the time about AI uh, software makes mistakes. So how, how, do you, uh, how do you train it in maybe a small area or in an area that's fenced off from the rest of the grid uh, before you release something into, into the entire system? Yeah, so I would say it's really the biggest issue here is it's all about the data. So having good, high quality data is what will help us to be able to train the models in the way that we need. And as we continue to train those models, regardless of what the end application is for, whether it's managing the power grid or whether it's evaluating the satellite data that we have or looking at maintenance work order requests and how can we optimize how we use those really it's all about having a good complete data set. And so one of the things we're doing at EPRI to support this is we're bringing together large numbers of correlated data sets that we can use not only internally, but also clean and release as, as possible to the public for not just our utility members or not just government entities or academia, but really any member of the public. And what we do for these is scrub out any sensitive IP or uh, PII, personally identifiable information, and then work with our utility partners to, to release that data so that then 
whether it's a startup or an academic at a university or a national lab, they can get access to these data sets, train the algorithms, evaluate the performance in a large, robust data set, because typically what you'll do is you'll take your entire data set and split it into two chunks. One is the training set and one is the test set. And so the training set is what you train it on, which so it, it will be able to do very well on that. But the test set is kind of the pop quiz of, okay, now you have to go and test on data you haven't seen before. So we all know that if you train it on something that is already seen, it's kind of like giving a teenager the answers to the quiz. They'll do really well. But if you don't give them the answer to the quiz, then you see how much they've actually learned. So th that's the way that we typically train AI algorithms. And one of the things we're looking at for the future that we're really excited about is quantum machine learning. And what I mean by that is using quantum computers to work hand in hand with machine learning. And the benefit that we see here is being able to get either better results with the same data or the same level results with less data. And so this is an area that we're, uh, it's still very early on, but we're excited about the possibilities of where quantum and machine learning can take us for being able to develop and expand on what we're doing today. Uh, to build on Adam's insightful question, uh, I'm wondering what are the downsides here? You cannot talk about AI without talking about things that go wrong, hallucinations, and the things that worry people about AI. Will it cost jobs? But more important, will it take over the thinking that we normally uh, believe is our role? Oh, so Llewellyn, thank you for that question because I, I think it's very important to de-hype AI. So we've talked a lot about the benefits so far. So I really appreciate you bringing it up. What are the risks? What are the potential drawbacks? And so you're absolutely right. Uh, there are several concerns that we need to be ready for and address. Uh, one of which I like how you said, is AI going to take our jobs? And what we've seen with a lot of different technologies, whether it's automation or the industrial revolution, we, we've often seen this before where we're concerned about losing jobs. And typically what we've seen is actually a net increase in jobs. Those jobs may be different than the previous ones, but they're often higher paying and there are more of them. And I think that'll happen with AI as well, because as people are getting trained in data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence technologies, those jobs are really in high demand and utilities as well as other companies are seeing the benefits of that. And so they're trying to not just take advantage of them, but understand how and when to use them for maximum benefit. On, this, on the same token, you mentioned there's additional threats, and that's absolutely true. And I'll, I'll break that into two different types of threats, one of which is looking at um, advanced generative AI attacks, where you can have, let's say your CEO calls you up from an unknown phone number using a deep fake, which is actually you know, a, an AI-generated video and audio of a particular person. So it can look and sound like your CEO and he says, hey, you know, I'm calling you from a, another number, but it's me, you can see it's me, and I need you to wire me $1,000 or send me a gift card or X, Y, Z. And so that's something that we've never had to deal with before where you have realistic images, video, and audio of a person that normally you would trust. And so these are the types of things that we have to be aware of and ready for. Now, there are some simple things you can do in terms of you know, asking them to turn to the side because 
generally they won't be trained to see ears or teeth very well in these in these things. So another simple thing is just hang up and, and call your CEO or text them and say, hey, did you just call me and ask for a thousand dollars? And they can say, no, it wasn't me. And then, you know, OK, that was a, a next level phishing or smishing attack. Um, but there are things that we've never faced before. And on the same token, um, as we as we go into this brave new world, you mentioned hallucinations. And we've seen this a lot with generative AI where it's kind of like uh, a four-year-old. You can ask a four-year-old any kind of question and they'll have an answer for you, but it may not be right. And so understanding how and when to believe them and how and when to use them is very important. Um, we've seen different cases where um, generative AI will make up precedents for what it's coming up with or make up news articles that aren't actually real or make up images. And so we have to be really careful going forward to be able to vet what's coming from these AI technologies and be able to kind of have a new filter on how we interpret the world and kind of be maybe a little bit more questioning of the things that we see out in the world. So it's a brave new world and we're all going to adapt to it, uh, but it's going to be a little bit of a bumpy road as we deal with the, the new threats as well as the new opportunities from these technologies. Is all of this more or less invisible or opaque to, to us consumers? Uh, is, there any, is there anything that we see uh, other than the lights staying on in, the, in this revolution? I would say in some cases, no, in some cases, yes. Um, so. Uh, I sound like a politician here, like answering every question with yes and no, but um, it, it's really, there's a lot of nuance. In some cases, it may be that you have a smart thermostat that interacts with you, or you're charging your electric vehicle, um, and it says, hey, if you put power back onto the grid right now, we'll pay you X number of cents per kilowatt hour, and you can say yes or no and opt in or opt out. And maybe you want to have control of that where you opt in manually, or maybe once it reaches a certain threshold, it, it's automatic. Um, and so things like that may have some visibility. Other things will just happen in the background where maybe your thermostat, uh, you have one of those agreements with your utility where they can turn off your AC unit, you know, two times or three times a month for two hours. And so some things will happen in the background like that. Others will be more transparent. That's our show for today. I thank Jeremy Renshaw of the Electric Power Research Institute and my co-host Adam Paul III. We do hope that the lights stay on and the air conditioning stays on. I'd ask you to take a thought of what it will be like in Florida or Texas or any of the southern states if air conditioning had not been invented and deployed, I suspect there would have been no move from the rust belt to the sun belt. I suspect that there would have been a move from the sun belt to the cold belt. Until next week, may the lights be on. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Wherever you listen, we are there.